You are listening to the Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beej, the advancing journeyman developer. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash complete developer podcast. This episode is sponsored by Datadog. I'm going through the triple D and domain Dallas. Domain driven design, DDD, can be challenging to understand due to all the jargon that's used around it. It extends the principles of object-oriented programming, and in this episode, we're going to try and clear up some of the mystery around domain-driven design. First, we'll compare domain-driven design with object-oriented programming. Then we'll discuss some of the concepts in domain-driven design. Finally, we'll explain the benefits of using it in your code. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, I kind of sort of achieved one of my yearly goals uh, a little early. Um, I worked from home two days last week, and that's something my boss is apparently wanting to see more frequently. That is awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, we got just completely overwhelmed on projects, and I've, and I've been getting interrupted frequently at work. Uh, it's to the point where I think one day before lunch, the longest period of contiguous time that I had that I wasn't interrupted was 33 minutes. Wow. And that was like seven interruptions total. So you can imagine, you know, how that was scattered. And that makes it a little challenging to get any work done, especially since the morning is my best time and it basically just got eaten. And due to the project load, what I did is I said, hey, you know, I could probably do better on this if I worked remote because I can. I've got four monitors here and two there. Actually, technically, at one point I was running with five screens because I was splitting all four of my monitors to, you know, because I had I had some code that was sample code where I'd done yeah. some similar stuff before. And then I had the stuff I was working in. And then I had the um, specifications for the project on my tablet open <laughs> over to the side. So it's like absolutely ridiculous. It was a perfect photo opportunity, but I legit needed that at that point. And that's um, that worked out pretty well. Uh, overdid it a little bit. Uh, that first day I did 11 hours and 15 minutes with no break because um, I got going and I thought, well, I'll, I'll stop and eat, you know, and, and all that. Um, w- you know, when I run out of steam, go get some food and come back. And I never ran out of steam. Well, you didn't have the interruptions. Right. You didn't have the things that usually wear you down. Yeah. And, and they also kind of tend to give me an excuse because it's like, okay, it's, you know, it's 1050. I just got interrupted. Just go get the guys and figure out where we're going to eat for lunch. Mm-hmm. Whereas the interruption didn't happen until um, I think like almost six o'clock at night. When my daughter was like, "Hey, you want to get something to eat?" <laughs> you know, like so. I, obviously, that's not a sustainable path, but it, it did work yeah. out rather well. So, well, I'm pretty stoked about about it. From someone that's been working from home for a while now, you get you you get used to it, and you used yeah. to work from home, so you're you know how to get back into that. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, is um. That first day was not planned to be sustainable. Mm-hmm. It was planned to jump in, knock the crap out of something, and then stop. Yeah. So, how about you? Well, I've been fighting with references to Oracle Data Access. Oh, you're talking about, okay, there's like the Oracle driver, and then there's that other DLL that it has to have yeah. that floats with it. We have that problem. I've been working on getting logging to work with an Oracle database. And there's not a lot of documentation out there yeah. um, for Oracle. SQL Server, I'd be fine. And this is in log, by the way. Yeah. 
And it, it took a while, but I finally got it to work in dev. Now I'm trying to move it to test and I'm not sure what exactly is going on. I, I talked with one of our ops guys and he's going to do some reconfiguration on the test server and it, it, they're working on that tonight. So hopefully I'll be, be able to work with it tomorrow. Yeah. If you can make some ops guys deal with it, that's way better than fixing it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I am officially off cable, sort of. I called to cancel it today and well, it was cheaper to stay with the basic cable package than to go completely off cable. I, I don't know why it's cheaper to have cable and internet than to have the same level of internet. Because they'll hope that they can rehook you. Yeah. Well, whatever. I'm not even going to use it. I'm probably not even going to plug it in. Um, I'm going to see how long I can go without even watching that or Sling TV. I'm kind of expecting that I can survive on just the the apps and Netflix for entertainment. So that that's pretty cool. Uh, the reason I'm doing this in part is because my birthday was this past weekend and I got an Amazon Fire Stick. Nice. So it's it's really cool. I uh, also got the Predators jersey that I'm wearing right now, as well as a Doctor Who blanket from my sister. That was awesome. Um, and then my other sister gave me my very own government spy. <laughs> and speaking of government spies, I've got something Alexa-related for IOTs. This week for IOTs, I have sort of a tutorial, uh, something that you can do to build things, um, not physical though. This is build Alexa skills. Uh, I recently received an Echo Dot for my birthday. Also, I had bought one for my mother for Christmas, and this past weekend I set both of them up. Um, government spy jokes aside, I'm really enjoying having the Alexa in my living room. I didn't know that you could install so many apps or what they're called on there are skills. I was thinking it was just sort of a fun interactive control center for a smart home. Um, or at least kind of the first steps towards a smart home. But uh, build your own Alexa skills using the AWS Lambda functions. You can use just about any modern language to build a Lambda function, but the most popular is Node.js. Uh, you'll have to register with Amazon as a developer to even get to their tutorials. Like I was trying to find information on this to write this up, and I couldn't look at the tutorials because I hadn't registered as an Amazon developer. However, Pluralsight has some awesome tutorials for setting up a basic skill. So I was able to go through some of those, and I have one of their blog posts as a link for the show notes. Who's talking to us this week? Well, uh, we grabbed a tweet from Chris Mathis. It says, at Complete Dev Pod, big thanks to Will for coaching NSS Cohort 22 on whiteboard skills. Just signed up for Code Wars to work on Code Codas. Oh, hey, that's, uh, that's one I didn't think about mentioning in our Facebook Live. That's really cool. Yeah. So, so that was uh, the discussion from Friday. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Will and I both enjoy speaking at different schools and boot camps. I'm hoping to get a chance to speak at NSS as well. Um, in the meantime, 
send us a DM with your contact information because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you. And guys, if you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle, leave us a review on iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all our episodes to Twitter, Facebook, Google Plus, and LinkedIn. We're also on Path and Tumblr and now have a plethora of photos on Instagram. Plethora is a type of a flatworm, right? I think so, yeah. (laughs) Also, check us out on Facebook and Twitter Live every Monday evening, where we talk about what's going on in the tech world and answer listener questions. You can join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. A thank you to our sponsor, Datadog, a cloud monitoring platform bringing full visibility to dynamic infrastructure and applications. Create beautiful dashboards, set powerful machine learning-based alerts, and collaborate with your team to resolve performance issues. Datadog integrates seamlessly with more than 200 technologies, including Google Cloud Platform, AWS, so you can use it with your Alexa skills, your writing, Docker, PagerDuty, and Slack. With fast installation and setup, plus APIs and open source libraries for custom instrumentation, Datadog makes it easy for teams to monitor every layer of their stack in one place. But don't take our word for it. Start a free trial today and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. Visit datadog.com slash complete developer to get started. The principles of domain-driven design make a lot of sense, but the documentation around it is not very helpful for getting your head around the idea. We're going to try to clear some of that up in the hopes that you'll be able to use these ideas in your own software development practices. We'll start by going over some definitions and then get into practical things you can do to use these concepts in your own code. So what is a domain? Well, from the dictionary, it's a sphere of knowledge or activity. Right. And from the software perspective, this is the subject matter of the application that you're writing. I recently went through some issues where the subject matter changed yeah. because of legislature I mean, working for the government, legislature changes, and all of a sudden the application that you're building, you have to go rewrite part of it because what you've just done doesn't make sense. Right. And that, that can be frustrating, but if you're using a domain-driven design, it can help. Yeah, I'll give another good example as well. Like if you're in an e-commerce type situation, different mm-hmm. departments might be considered different domains, even if they're storing the data mm-hmm. in the same place, if that, if that helps a little bit. That does. That makes a lot of sense. Domain-driven development is primarily about building and designing your applications to be focused on the business needs of your client. We're going to start off talking about three principles of DDD. First, focus on the core domain and the domain logic. This is also the business logic or the business layer. Right. And that's that's probably something that is underemphasized a lot mm-hmm. because a lot of people, uh, myself included sometimes, will build apps and, and what do we focus on? We focus on the UI or we focus on oh, the, the database. Data. Yeah. And there's this is kind of a mid-tier focused thing. It mm-hmm. uses the middle tier to drive the other two. What's interesting is I have seen some applications where the majority of the business logic was actually at the UI level. Yeah. Because it was designed to be a mobile application that could be used offline. Yes. And so the the middle tier was basically a pass-through. 
Yeah, like super thin. Yeah. You'll also see it where the uh, the database is where all the logic is. Um, I've seen that too. Yeah, and I mean, the the main app I work with, that seems to be the, where, the two places where the logic is, depending on what's going on. Whereas like your middle tier tends to get it when that's the API endpoint. Right. And there's a bunch of stuff hitting. It, it's basically like if you look at all the inputs to the app, it's where all those arrows come together. That's where mm-hmm. things happen. Yeah, the... the- Interesting you say that because our I work directly with our senior front end developer and he and I were talking today about sort of how I constantly get interrupted throughout the day and I like to get up a little earlier and so I can get work done because I know throughout the day I'm going to be answering questions and stuff. And he said, yeah, I don't get that as much because, you know, he's like, it's kind of like I have the body and the tail and you have all have to deal with all the heads of the Hydra. Yeah. Because the front end comes into the API, and then that talks to all the services. Right. Now, of course, the difference between a junior dev and a senior dev is, you know, a junior dev will look at it and go, oh, all the heads of the Hydra come in here, and it's easier. It's like, what happens when they all swallow? <laughs> <laughs> so that goes right into the next principle of domain-driven design, which is to base your complex designs on the models of the domain. We actually got into this today at work where we were trying to figure out what the user needed because they've been working with a paper-based system for so long that the product owners that we have, their boss wants to get away from the way that they've been tracking things because he's like, there's no point. We needed this 20 years ago when it was all paper, but we don't need to use these numbers in this way now. So we can do something better. And so we've been working with them the past few weeks to kind of suss out what exactly it is that they want so that we can base what we build on how they're going to use it, as opposed to basing what we build on how the data is stored or how it looks. Right. In other words, how the designers came up with something. Finally, constantly collaborate with domain experts in order to improve the application model and resolve any emerging domain-related issues. Yeah, and this is what makes DDD fit really well with uh, Lean and Agile and those kind of things um, mm-hmm. instead of the old waterfall model. Right. Which is typically where you'll see a lot of like database-driven design decisions and UI-driven decisions. It's where they design it all up front, and then they go versus iterating. Because they don't, they have to build it from one perspective or the other. Right. Because you build it from one perspective and the the business model changes, the domain changes, well then hey, we can we can adjust that level, but we can't adjust our design. Whereas a more agile approach is adjust the design as you go along. Right. So I guess it's time to get into the difference between DDD and OOP because most people seem to think that there is a difference and that would be between domain driven design and object oriented programming. You know, to, to start off with, uh, DDD models are designed for large complex systems or groups of systems. As such, they're a little more subject to the messy way things are designed in reality than you're probably taught when learning object oriented programming. So an example of this is the canonical, uh, OOP, you know, paradigm of, okay, and, you know, I, I have a house cat object that inherits from a cat, that inherits from, you know, mammal, that inherits from animal. But, you know, what is the real world? Okay, yes, that way of looking at things, you know, fits your your pyramid of 
of how life is organized, but it's also domesticated. So it has to implement an interface that's I domesticated. Um, it also uses the bathroom inside the house. So there's another one. And, you know, the real model is not going to exactly fit what you were taught in class for classic OOP. Right. It goes to like the issue I was having earlier today with, um, I was trying to mock a repository. It was inheriting from a base repository using generics. And I was having trouble doing my tests because I was trying to verify that I was hitting a certain method on the base repository that that repository inherited from. I eventually figured it out, but it was like, whoa. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> so usually when I mock a repository, I call it a suppository. Oh, wow. <laughs> Anyways, unlike object-oriented programming, domain-driven design is an approach to software development instead of a model for writing computer programs. It has to do with the overall architecture, the way... The way you look at look, it. Yeah. It's your, thought, it's your thought process, not your implementation. Exactly. Um, so, to describe this in object-oriented terms, DDD would be the class and OOP would be the instance. <laughs> yeah. If you really want to kind of bend your brain around that one to wherever that goes. Um, but that yeah, that's kind of the way that it was explained to me. So, OOP will help you with your structure of your code. And you'll use object-oriented principles while you're doing domain-driven mm -hmm. stuff. Um, but DDD is a way of structuring your development practices and terminology to help you make design decisions, including as you're going along with the code, you know, especially if you're not doing a big design up front, right? This is still in the mix. In effect, DDD is used as code is being planned, while OOP is used more while it is being written. So the two kind of hold hands. In a lot of ways, there's a there's a big overlap between the thought processes. All right. Well, I mean, DDD is the way you look at your overall system. It right. is, all right, we're going to focus on the business logic, and that is going to be what drives everything else. Yeah. Another way to look at DDD is to say, how would I structure my development environment if I was doing OOP correctly? Mm -hmm. Because it's it's kind of a logical outgrowth in a lot of ways. Right. And it really focuses more on solving problems than on writing the code. Just like well-paying software development jobs are more about solving problems than they are about writing code, this is more about solving the problems for the business. Right. What do they need? I, I remember a meeting I went to when we had a developer leave and I got pulled in to help finish up the project he was on. And we met with the the business side of the team, the the division that we are building this for. And I went in and, you know, I, I was trying to get them to explain what they needed. And finally, I had to stop the meeting and said, all right, look, I'm here to build something that makes your job easier. But to do that, I have to understand what your job is. And once I put put it in those terms, then they understood why I was asking the questions I was asking and how to respond to them. But up until then, I was getting all sorts of sort of, I don't want to say airy answers, but they weren't specific enough because they assumed that you were using the same definitions for words that they were. Exactly. Yeah. That's a big problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A big part of this is establishing a shared vocabulary between development and the product owners, the business people, the customers, 
about what is required. What do they need? Yeah, and this can actually be helpful even in the absence of a development process because you would be shocked at how frequently people from different departments that have nothing to do with tech use the same words for widely different concepts. You know, they assume that when somebody else says the same thing, that they're meaning the same thing. We have that problem even within our division, even within our team, yeah. talking about certain things. And I have to ask the question, okay, what do you mean by that? Because that word has a meaning in .NET, and I don't think you're using it for that. So I need to know what how you're using that word. Right. And so, yeah, that that happens all over the place. Um, honestly, I remember when we were in college, some of our friends, we would get into like these big debates with them. A lot of it boiled down to a difference in terminology. Yeah. We were and they using... basically meant the same thing where sometimes it was fun to stir them up too. <laughs> well, there was that too. <laughs> Cause I mean, let's be honest. You and I stirred it up a lot and then we'd walk away. <laughs> yes. It was just like, you know, you get them into some kind of political argument. And it's like setting two Furbies down in front of each other and just like, what? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you know, here comes the racket. <laughs> right. The principles that we discussed earlier that are used in domain-driven design will a lot of times inform the way that you build objects. But you aren't necessarily restricted to using object-oriented programming with it. Like When I was reading through this, I was thinking, how does this relate to functional? Because I could really do some functional stuff with this. Yeah, but a lot of functional languages have got object stuff in there too. Right. Um, just like object-oriented languages have procedural stuff in there. It's just a continual inheritance of, mm -hmm. that's a bad word, of <laughs> design <laughs> methodologies for software. Talking about vocabulary. Yeah. So it's more about ma managing complexity than anything else. And I'll go back to the sample about um, having a house cat, you know, and that inherits from cat and that inherits from mammal and that inherits from animal as far as a base class chain. That makes loads of sense if you're a veterinarian or if you're a biologist or something like that. But picture a scenario where you are moving animals as cargo. You don't necessarily care that it's a mammal. You care about how much does it weigh, what does it have to eat, and what are its temperature tolerances and space requirements. Which being a mammal could influence those, but the fact that it is a mammal doesn't matter. Right. The, the specifics of... Those, those questions are what matters. Right. Or you could be transporting um, animals and humans, right? Okay, well, we inherit from, you know, mammal, but I'm pretty sure that international regulations forbid shipping us in small crates. Most likely. Yeah. You know, that's, that's not a thing. So, like, the base class is not indicative of how you react to this thing because it's not a good model. So, now that we've kind of talked about how domain-driven design relates to object-oriented programming, we're going to look at some of the concepts in domain-driven design. And Will got a lot of these from Wikipedia. I also found an article that probably spawns the Wikipedia, so we'll have both of those links in the show notes. First off is bounded context. The context in which a particular domain-driven model applies. Right. In other words, what are the bounds of an area in which a word means a thing? And you'll have multiple bounded contexts in big projects frequently. Um, as an example, let's talk through how a customer might be represented in various bounded contexts of an e-commerce site. So for a point of sale, a customer is a person with a shopping cart 
who eventually has makes an order and has a method of paying, right? Because they're going through, they're making orders, they're doing all that. We may know about their order history, probably don't. You know, we may know certain things about them, but the main thing is what have they looked at, what things are related, like that's the area that we're dealing with. They pay. Okay, now they go into everything goes into fulfillment. So it's now the shipping department. Well, we don't really care what they looked at in the store. For us, that's useless, but we really do care about their shipping address and the people you know, that we're dealing with a bounded context of the front end didn't care about the shipping address except for the purposes of getting that order together. But the shipping address is very important for us because we've got a lot of stuff that we've got to deal with, you know, you know, hooking up UPS and all that kind of stuff. So it looks different. If we go a little further and, okay, they've made the sale, the stuff has been shipped to them, and now they're unhappy, and they call customer service. Well, a customer is somebody with a ticket in customer service or somebody with a problem. It doesn't matter where they came from and where they are in that other process. It's external to that. A customer is not a customer, necessarily. You, you, a customer is a customer only within the bounded context that you're talking about. Right, that, that makes sense because, for example, the application I'm working on right now, it is the first step in replacing an old system that's been around for 10, 15 years. We are doing the data entry, basically. And in that process, we're making certain forms available online so people can go and you know, fill out applications online that normally they had to fill out on paper and mail in. Well, step two of that, the next thing we do with it is going to be an inspection piece. The things that are important for the invoicing and the billing of, hey, I've registered this and I've had it inspected are different. So while we're taking in this information, what's important in one context yeah, it's is completely not in superfluous another. in another. Yeah. And what's important in that other context is not in this one. The point here is that a database record centered approach doesn't capture the way the business handles a particular entity at a particular point. In other words, it's one size fits small because you end up with, with stuff that's like you got to have everything for everybody right there. And that's in your object getting passed around, now, including this, sensitive data potentially. We had this discussion today on it and I I pointed out I said look because I was I was explaining to our our UI what you're talking about is the application the interface side of things it's like this is the data model and the data model does not always represent the real world it right. is it has to be a model of it it has to be how we can store the data and how we can retrieve it quickly right to be able to then interact with the real world. And that's why you have multiple layers there because you you bring it out, you pass it through its business logic, and then you, you transform it. Yes. And so I was explaining this to not so much to him because I was just reminding him, but to the non-technical people in the room. And, you know, they, they're all looking at me. I'm like, this is a model of the real world. It's like a map. A map doesn't have all the twists and turns on it. If it did, it would, it would be, the, be size, the path. Yeah. This size of the real world. <laughs> yeah. And that goes right into the next concept, which is value object. This is an object that does not have an identity, or in other words, it doesn't stand alone. Right. So it's it's part of a larger whole. Right. right? Um, you can think of it like if it was a body part, it would be a hand. If a hand's attached to a person, that's fine. If a hand is sitting out on the ground, you know, unless it's the Adams family, you have a problem, <laughs> give or take, right? Like that's, in other words, it doesn't. Let's just say after working in the emergency room, there's a reason I will not drive with my hand hanging out a window. 
Alrighty. That's cool, too. Yeah. So a value object has to be immutable. Um, attribute and property values are injected on the constructor and don't change after construction. Now, this is really important because the value objects hang under other objects. So if something gets a reference to them and starts changing properties, the parent object doesn't necessarily know. So either you have to make it immutable or you have to have some kind of notification method, and the latter is a pain. That's why they do that. For instance, an address is pretty much useless without the customer that goes with it, but it has to have its own logic, and it needs to be passed around as a unit. You know, what's interesting is you used address as your example here. I wrote the address component. Well, I wrote the initial address component for our, our Angular apps. It's probably been rewritten since then because we've had some uh, logic changes right. in the way we handle uh, postal codes and international addresses and stuff. But so I think of that and I think, all right, I know how things work on the API pretty well, but it's really neat because with Angular specifically, you create a component and then you just have that a, tag in there. Yeah. An HTML tag. That's like an open. I do that with knockout. The yeah. same kind of principle. It's like, and you just like open and close, a, you know, address and that puts that entire address component with the and you data bind it to your object yeah with the html and then you know the the javascript behind it yeah. right in there and it's it's really neat and fits this perfectly because that that doesn't change right now you might be you know people will question and they'll go okay well what an address can change it's like it can't change for the lifetime of that value object in other words if you change it you make another one Mm -hmm. And you replace that. That's you know that's how it's going to work under the hood. It makes you know comparisons easy. It makes all that other stuff really simple. And typically in languages that allow it, this would be you know C plus plus, C sharp, lots of others. That also means that you'll override the equality operators so that you can see if two instances of a value object are equivalent. Because if you have two address value objects, they aren't going to have the same pointer to them necessarily. Mm -hmm. So you can't compare pointers, so you got to look at the properties and see if they're yeah. the same or some kind of hash or something like that. Now that we've talked about value objects, the next thing is called an entity. And an entity is an object that is defined by a thread of continuity and its identity rather than its attributes. So here, here's the way to, to explain this. Think of a hand as a value object. You know, you don't change hand, you don't change fingers on the hand, right? Like it's, there, it's not there. But you might change your beard color, right? You're the entity. You have this these value objects hanging off of you. <laughs> Literally hanging off of you. Yeah. I don't know. It's, <laughs> this is Okay, this is really hard without a lot of metaphor. Yeah, so the entity contains both the immutable value objects and, and other entities, potentially. Other, entity, other entities and things that can be changed, like right. a beard's color. Um, you know, an entity may be mutable or may not at that point it's a design decision about how you're using the object so you may want it to be immutable because of thread safety mm -hmm. um, it's it's not the way it is as you know a design things so much as it is hey this is an implementation consideration yeah for instance a customer for the order entry system might have an id identity and a name and address two value objects with the address being a complex object. Yeah, which I guess really the name would be too. Like if you look at how complex human names actually are, 
you know, that's that's not as simple as first, middle, last. Like that worked great in the nineties. It does not work anymore. This entity encapsulates domain logic for itself rather than being changed by something outside of it. So instead of another part of the application setting the address by directly accessing the value. Yeah. Instead, it sends a message indicating, hey, the address needs to change. And then the entity changes it internally. And I've seen a lot of this in examples and like the, for example, entity framework, the, the partial classes that it creates from the database have that in them. The newer stuff does. I was going to say the old stuff. I don't think it does, man. Yeah. It, 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 it's, yeah. Like it's all private and then, oh, yeah. Setters. Yeah. Uh, you mean public getters? Yeah. Private what, yeah, setters. Yeah. yeah. Private setters. Yeah. Ours getters. doesn't do that yet. Um, and then, and you call the, and then you call the function that sets that privately. Yeah. So you can actually do it. You know, a part of this is to make it atomic. In other words, like you can't say, okay, well, you know, here's their street address. I'm going to change the state. Mm-hmm. I don't mean state like application state. I mean like state like United States. Yeah. Oh, hey, you know, they moved to ex- the exact same address in the exact same town with the exact same zip code in a different state. That's an invalid transformation. So the point of this is, is to make that. The only atomic. issue I have with that is the case of they entered the wrong state. Yeah, but you would still do a change because that's a, that's a, that's kind of a one off versus mm-hmm. people being idiots, which isn't a one off. <laughs> yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's why that is structured that way. The other thing that can happen is, is that message can come in and the entity can say, yeah, we're not doing that. Or the entity can go, oh, this isn't valid. Or it touches some other part in there too. Because what's, who's to say that a customer, you know, when an address change comes in, you know, whatever sent that knows that there's an address change. But what it doesn't need to know is that the customer also keeps track of previous addresses. And so it says, okay, here's the previous one, or here's, here's the existing one. I'm going to pop it into this array, and then I'm going to put the new one. I'm going to build a new one up and put it here. But I'm going to hold on to the old state. Like, it doesn't need to know the innards of how the customer object deals with things. It just needs to send a message. The main deal here is that you can make a change to the way an entity works under the hood, and nothing else cares, because everything else is just sending a message. Yeah, and this allows validation, uh, along with a lot of other things. Um, also. You get to determine whether two entities are the same thing based on their identity, which can make some interesting problems if different things are changing the same entity. Right. Well, and another thing, too, is whatever repository they're coming out of, Mm -hmm. if that repository can cache. So it it pulls the entity out and it's got its ID and its type and something goes, hey, give me that. It can give you the reference to the previous one because you're sending messages to it. You're not reading and writing fields while a process is going on. So there's there's some of those kind of things in there too, but the, the big deal is you compare entities on identity and you compare value objects on properties. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and of course talking about the validation thing, like the the whole address thing changes. You, know, you could have an entity that says, hey, yeah, we'll take this address change. Wait, it's going to Portland, Oregon? That place is weird. We're not doing that. And that's totally legit. I don't know if it's necessarily legit to not ship to Portland, but, you know. <laughs> Apparently, it's legit to not ship to Poland because we've had some issue with uh, some of our water bottles getting out of the country. Yeah. Next is aggregate, a collection of objects bound together by a root entity, also known as an aggregate root. Right. So, the customer in the previous example would probably be an aggregate root. Yeah. 
it keeps its internal state consistent by stopping changes to the objects within it. In other words, it doesn't it doesn't give you a reference to its internal stuff. So you'll see this in object-oriented programming with uh, things like lists. You don't you don't ever go, okay, here's a getter. Let me return my internal list to this other guy. Because this other guy may go, hey, let's delete all the things out of it, right? Like you copy it and you hand that back to him and go, here, here it is as it currently stands, but you aren't getting mine. Yeah. This whole thing with not allowing references to internal objects um, is, is kind of the important thing here. Um, for instance, a customer entity that contains a subscription entity Bear in mind, those are different entities, but there's, they're under one aggregate root. Like the subscription is not useful without the customer who's paying for it and all the other stuff mm-hmm. that goes with that. They might process a subscription address change message, which it would then forward to the subscription entity that would then generate a new address value object. So the subscription entity is also not letting the customer screw with its stuff. Right. So it's, it's very separated. Right. Whereas, you know, some systems I've worked on, you know, they might have this huge object tree that's really deep and they've got a method in, you know, a web form somewhere that goes all the way down that thing and touches something at the end. It's like, you know what happens when something changes? You've got to fix every web form in your site now mm-hmm. and test them. Yep. So that that's, that's the why. Um, now, the next thing is a domain event. And a domain event is an object that defines an event that happened, notice past tense, in a domain. And that would be something that the domain experts care about. And an event is something that happened in the past, and as such is usually described with past tense verbs. The example I saw that was, that was interesting is they said, what happens if it's a noun that has been verbed? And that can really, uh, that can kind of cause you a lot of problems. So if, you know, if you keep a track of earthquakes and use earthquake as, as a, domain event name that's not necessarily the best choice because somebody might think that's a noun which would be an entity and the deal here is that events are raised in a domain to help make side effects explicit instead of implicit so in other words i know that my object is kicking off this event and then i go and i look and see where that event goes instead of going oh yeah this this process goes along and it touches something somewhere else and it has to have intimate knowledge of how that other part of the system works. So this is the other side of the whole um, aggregate protection for the innards of the entity is the emission of events when something happens. So a, a good example of this would be if you had a if you had a domain event to indicate that a customer's name was changed. You know, somebody got married and it goes through in processes or or whatever. Like let's say they let's say that they started out and uh, there was a got married event, right? That hits the customer. The customer object processes that and says, okay, you know, there's a flag on here that says their, you know, their name is changed. So we're going to do that. We're going to change the name. And after we change the name, we're going to emit another event that says name changed so that other things that are listening that have interest in that can react to it. Okay. That, that keeps the encapsulation. So, you know, it's, it's messaging on one side and it's immutability or, privacy on the other. Next is service. This is an object that encapsulates operations that don't belong to a single entity. I use services a lot. I have a folder of services and ultimately I'm hoping that we can create a a package to just put those in. Put those in and then you just call that because a lot of them are the same thing and they're used across. They're copied and pasted and everything else. Yeah. Been there done that. 
Still doing yeah. it, actually. <laughs> you know, this is this is something like, for example, I have an email service that the service you call, you know, email service dot create message, um, or like depending on what at what point in the application you need to send an email. Like, there's like, I I started an application, therefore, you know, I'm getting the initial, hey, you started. Here's your your links to connect versus it's been approved. So, yeah, there's like the create, start, create, approval, whatever, these different ones. Calls that service, that service creates the email and returns a string for the email. And then there's another one that, you know, sends it. Yeah, and separating this out can get kind of weird, too, because like, I'm sure some of your apps are this way, too, where there's emails that that are sent during the course of doing other stuff. Right. And then there's emails that are actually, no, this is a valuable thing that we have, you know, that's, that's actually part of something. You know, we have a uh, customer communications portal right. that yeah. sends emails and like the, e- no, that's a first class system entity, not mm-hmm. a notification email. That's just, yeah, yo dog, something happened. Mm-hmm. We have both of those. So we have the service and the entity. Um, now we're not doing DDD, so we're okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, we've still got to fix that. Right. And this is talking about service classes. Not API endpoints or Windows services, all of which we all have. Yeah. Which Again, back it, to vocabulary. Yeah. It gets really nasty. I think the biggest place I tend to use services is where there is a call going across a security boundary or going out to an API. Yeah. That's, I do that same thing. To, to wrap it so that when yep. it blows up, it just is there. Yes. <laughs> and I can that actually find exactly it. exactly what I do. And you didn't teach that to me. I just no. like, that's like just the natural way of building. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just like after you run into a wall, you realize, hey, maybe I ought to put my hands out in front of me. <laughs> like that's, that's what that is. That's a fear reaction that we all have. So true. <laughs> so uh, another concept that comes up is a repository. And basically the deal is here is you're going to be, you know, retrieving domain objects and persisting them back to some kind of data store. Your app doesn't really need to know what that is. It just needs to go, hey, save this. You probably don't want the object necessarily saving itself because if it does save itself, what happens when you decide to change your data store? Physician heal thyself. Right. (laughs) Because, I mean, I've I have worked on. Um, I think one team that actually changed their, the database engine that they were using, you know, for all the things. And I've worked on, you know, they went from MySQL to SQL. Oh, wow. And that same team, you know, and that, the MySQL to SQL thing was almost over when I started there. Um, and then later on, they had certain entities that they're like, Hey, we need to store this in RavenDB come out of there. So it was going from an, a, um, relational data model to a document database model. Well, all of our code, thankfully, was written with a repository pattern. And so we just made, you know, we had an interface for that repository type. We made another another type yeah. that implemented that interface, but saved to the other kind of database. And we went on with life. That's the way we work, too. It's um, That was set up when I got there. I just kept using it. Yeah. Because I recognized, yeah, that way, if you change that out. Yeah. And you can also do a lot of shenanigans, too, by putting all that stuff in that pattern. Um, mm-hmm. For instance, when you're testing, you can implement something that says, oh yeah, here's here's a fake one to go yeah. do, do your thing with. Well, it's like what I was talking about earlier in the episode where today I had some issues because we use a base repository that takes generics and just does kind of the basic functionality. Yeah. And then we inherit it. from that and build onto it. 
Um, but that one's awful hard to test, isn't it? Oh yes. And oh it's, it, you know, you sit there and you get the warnings. It's like, yeah, you know, your, your code coverage is this. And you start looking and it's like, yeah, but all the things that I don't cover, I can't figure out how. <laughs> yeah, I've been there a few times. And typically you're not going to access a repository from an entity, but you get the entities from the repository. It's really important not to have it go both ways. Mm-hmm. You know, just to have a single direction reference. Yeah. Well, that that makes sense because I mean, the way that we have it built, you you call into this web API, you call into the controller. The controller then reaches out to the repository um, on a Git, or you know, it reaches out both ways. But like yeah. on a Git, it reaches out to a repository, which calls to the database, and comes back to the repository. The repository passes it up, and you go, okay, now I've got it. Yeah, and then and, you call some methods on it, and do some things, yeah. whatever you do. And then you tell the repository, hey, save this. Because the thing about it is, is the repository doesn't really know when you need to save the object. Mm-hmm. And the object itself may not know. Like you may pull an entity back and do a bunch of stuff to it, but something else happens and you realize, you know, hey, we're at step four of the order process and their credit card doesn't work. You know, so I don't want to save this order entity. I want to save something else that's got the same kind of data, but it's a you know pending order. Mm-hmm. Or something like that. That's yeah, we, completely different. We do something like I'm building something similar where we are allowing changes to some of the registrations that have come in. So you want to change something on that registration. You can go into it and say, I want to make a change. Well, it doesn't immediately change your registration because it's, yeah, it's a request. That thing is, is immutable until somebody says, no, it's, it's okay. Right. Yeah. It's gated. Mm-hmm. Um, and this and the the repository allows that process. Finally, what's the point of it all? Or what are the benefits of domain driven design? Well, obviously the the biggest one is you know is things are clean. Mm-hmm. Um, objects have a single responsibility, and it's easy to reason about what the code is doing without being concerned as much about side effects. In other words, you don't see things where it's like, oh, you know, we. You know, we got the customer's address, but when we called it, it's, you know, there's some counter in there that just, you know, writes to the database or does something weird that blows up and breaks something mm-hmm. that has nothing to do with it. And that that's extremely painful. <laughs> We've actually been uh, been having some issues where we're trying to track all the interactions that go on in our online interfaces. And so whenever someone does business online and it passes through versus an employee just entering, we're tracking that. Yeah. Um, and that's currently being built. Like I built a good chunk of that service and now it's been passed on to another team and they're working on it. Well, it's still in the process of growing and becoming a thing. Occasionally it breaks and just this past sprint, I actually had to deal with the fact that, hey, this is broken, so it's throwing all sorts of errors and breaking my code, my project, because I'm getting, you know, I'm not able to talk to the service. That shouldn't be the case. So I recently applied some of the domain-driven design. I'm like, all right, our domain is here. It doesn't have to talk to this service and track it. That's a nice to have kind of thing. Yeah. You know, it's something that our boss wants, but it's also something that, oh, hey, the important thing is we get the data in and, you know, the business is able to go through it and approve or deny 
these applications, tracking what is used, that's that's a side interest yeah. that if that breaks because that service is down, should not break the functionality of the actual application. There's a there's a book that gets into some of this with uh, enterprise design patterns. Uh-huh. It talks about the circuit breaker pattern. You might like that. So, so the big deal here with you know clean code is that it lowers the total cost of ownership of the application over time. In other words, I get a junior developer in. How long does it take before they are useful? Um, the app that I'm working on right now, um, they gave me a slice of it to work on that was kind of isolated. And it was probably a month or so before I was actually useful. A, a junior developer coming in on that, you know, it might be four or five months. And we're trying to lower that, obviously, because you want to clean that code up to the point where you can go, yeah, here's the page I want you to work on. And they only have to worry about that page, not all these side effects that are way out here. Yeah. And, you know, and knowing business rules for stuff that, you know, like they probably haven't even met the people that care about those things yet. You're you're doing web forms. Web forms, uh, web API and MVC, mostly web forms. I'm more, getting like away from it. Yeah, um, we're doing pretty much all web API with a with MVC only when JSON doesn't handle it, like file uploads and downloads. JSON has a size limit. Well, you, you chunk it. Had not thought about doing it that way, but uh, we just used MVC and it works fine. Yeah, form data, but. Um, Oh, you're talking about on the receiving end. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you could do that. Uh, I thought you were talking about MVC views. Oh, no, no, we're not. Okay. We're not doing like, views. Do what? Okay. The, that's all, like, that's all handled with the, the Angular stuff. Yeah. That's and, why I was like, why would you do that? It, it, well, because, because yeah. of the way we've got it, it's, it is pretty easy to come in and pick up what's going on because you go in, you're like, all right, it comes into this controller and then you can just follow it. Yeah, like you could I also could, do WebSockets and push it through yeah. that way, but if you really wanted to go... I, I could jump into any one of our applications that I haven't touched and know nothing about the business side, build for it, or figure something out, or like, if I'm told, hey, we need this here, build it, Yeah, because of the way they're designed. Yeah, and the other thing that DDD really does a good job of is it gives the developers the same vocabulary as the business people. And so right. when you get a new developer in and they have to ask questions, you know, mm-hmm. like let's say you're the only developer on a project and you get hit by a bus and you die. Somebody else comes in and takes over the project. When they talk to the business owners about what's going on and they have questions, it's better for them to have a vocabulary that matches what those people are using so that they can get their questions answered. It, it kind of creates the same common vocabulary, but for the overall organization. Yeah, because you you know the thing is is developers are agents of change and a lot of times we're in a position that forces change in the organization just because of what we're doing and we're bringing other departments you know departments together and making them have to work together and so ddd is a way of doing this in such a way that those departments aren't at each other's throats and we can actually get a design done and get out of the room mm-hmm. and this makes collaboration between teams a lot easier and shortens meetings yeah cuz meetings are shorter when everybody's got an agreed upon set of terms and what those terms mean. You know, they may argue over how something's implemented, but they aren't going to argue that a customer is a uh, support client when this is the order system. Yeah. This also allows the domain experts to get involved in the software design in a useful way. Yeah. And you'll see this a lot with uh, BDD when you're doing behavior driven development. Mm hmm. You know, they've got a common grammar. They can actually kind of write tests. You know, when this happens, then this, then this, and then here's the result. That yeah. stems from this whole thing. Yeah, they, they all kind of get their own understanding lined up since they 
kind of have gotten into the organization with widely different experiences. Yeah. Um, this is also a good way of preventing knowledge silos in different parts of your application and reduces the risk that the company faces if someone important leaves. Yeah. The other thing that knowledge silos do a lot of times is they protect the inept. Like your worst developer on your team, if they've been there for, I don't know, eight, ten years, the reason that they've been there isn't necessarily because they're that effective, although they might be effective and you're misjudging them. But if they're really legitimately bad, the reason they're still there is because they have control over something that nobody else can get. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And so if you break that, that person either has to grow or they have to go. Seen that. I've done that. Finally, it allows for continuous adjustment of the model without as much pain as doing things using CRUD. One of the biggest problems with CRUD, and we've talked about writing cruddy apps, is the amount of effort required to change the data model to accommodate changes. Right, because if you add a column in a CRUD system, you've got to account for that column throughout the system, even in places that like you don't care. Okay, cool, they receive HTML emails. What the heck does that have to do with changing their password? Well, guess what? <laughs> it has a lot to do with it. Because the domain-driven design model is separate from the database storage model, it a lot of times makes changing the code easier or at least reduces the size of these changes. DDD is an often praised development practice, but the literature available on it is sometimes less informative than we'd like. There are some core concepts of domain-driven design that are quite useful even outside of the practice. Once you understand how the pieces fit together, a lot of the blog posts and other things you'll see about it make more sense. That pretty much wraps us up. Before we close everything out, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? I just want to point out the value of understanding language as a protocol. And that's kind of what we're talking about here with the whole DDD thing, is the idea that words have certain meanings and that you can really only manipulate those words if you understand their meanings. A lot of companies don't seem to do a very good job of this. You should sort of start out with a data dictionary. You know, what do we mean when we say this thing? And that should happen pretty early in the development process because it will help shape the whole thing, even outside of the DDD realm. Um, you know, I can tell you in my current job, there is a concept in our system that I did not understand for a good eight months, even though I was dealing with it on a fairly regular basis. Um, I actually thought it was something else that was kind of similar. And it's it's tricky because what ends up happening is, is you make subtle errors in your code. So start out first by understanding how to communicate over a channel. In other words, what words do I need and what do those actually mean before you start assuming that you understand what's going on just because you think you know what that means. And that's true for individuals and development teams as a whole. I just, just want to encourage you, learn how to make it make a uh, data dictionary, you know, keep it public, keep it where you know the other developers can see it and update it and get that right, and it will make a lot of your stuff easier. And that's all I got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. 
For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Look for us each week on Facebook Live before we record each episode. Thanks for listening. See you next time.